Welcome to Educational Alpha. I'm Bill Kelly, CEO of Kaya and your host, bringing you on-the-ground conversations with business leaders, educators, and industry colleagues from around the globe. In this episode, Bill catches up with Stacey Havener, founder and CEO of Havener Capital. They discuss the importance of storytelling in the asset management industry and how it can shift the focus from asset gathering to creating value for clients while also diving into how the biases, norms, and outdated ways of thinking can be the antagonist in a story and how it's crucial to understand the client's hopes and dreams. Listen in. Stacey, great to see you. Great to see you. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. My pleasure. So we've known each other maybe more virtually than real, but you've got a very interesting story to tell and we're going to get into storytelling and who Stacy is. But maybe by a little bit of a backdrop, maybe introduce yourself to the listeners. Sure, I'd be happy to. So as Bill said, my name is Stacy Havener. I am the founder and CEO of a marketing agency called Havener Capital. In my career, I've raised over $8 billion that has led to $30 billion in follow-on AUM for boutique asset managers against some incredible odds and in one of the toughest boys clubs, Wall Street. Now, on paper, none of that makes sense, okay? I am a blue-collar kid from a working-class town who got the wrong degree from the wrong school, and I'm a woman. I never saw myself in the investment world. I actually wanted to be a college professor, but I paid my way through university and I was going to have to pay my way through grad school. My high school soccer coach, because don't all roads lead back to soccer, my high school soccer coach and I had stayed in touch. He ran a billion dollar small cap equity boutique and he was launching a new fund. And he offered me a job. He said, you know, come work here for a few years, help me launch this fund, save some money, and then go back to school and get your PhD. I never left the industry. I helped him launch that fund. We raised 500 million in two years. And then I raised 3 billion in three years for a $17 million fund and so on and so forth. It was fun. And I didn't know I was doing anything special. It took me a few more years to realize that I was doing something that was really difficult and probably another 10 years to unpack what it was that I was actually doing. And as you said, Bill, it was storytelling. I was helping people connect with each other at a human level because at the end of the day, people do business with people. And today, I'm lucky to lead the team at Havener where we help investment boutiques grow using our narrative-led sales and marketing system. I truly believe everyone has a story, and we're on a mission to help boutiques use that story to shape their success. Well, there's a lot of very interesting things that you put out there. And maybe at some point, I'd love to get into diversity. It's a big challenge for industry. And you've been a big champion and you touched upon that. Emerging managers, which that is the home of alpha, these less efficient, less well-trodden path. And maybe we'll touch upon that too. But I do want to start with storytelling. And if you look at your LinkedIn profile, if you listen to your podcast, that seems to be a touchstone that you begin and maybe end with, which I think is so very good. And I think we're at a point in the industry where we're more gathering assets as opposed to creating value, reading a compelling headline as opposed to telling a story. And at the end of every decision we make as professionals, there's a client on the other side. As we think about democratization, we may not know, touch, or feel that client. If it's in some kind of a commingled fund or a 40-act fund, 
Do we even know what their hopes and dreams are? And I'm not saying we have to get that granular, but making sure that you're defining your purpose as a manager and what client fits against that purpose. So maybe start with what your definition of storytelling is and why that is such an important touchstone. Yeah. There's so much in, we could spend the whole time just on that one question, Bill. That is such a great question. So let's just start with what is narrative? What is a story? And really, if you go back to just classic storytelling in a book or in a movie, what you see is it's actually a transformation. It's a transformation. Every story kind of has the same parts. So there's a hero, and we can talk about this. This is important. There's a hero. There's one hero, by the way. There's one hero in every story. The hero starts somewhere. They encounter some kind of obstacle or challenge, which they have to solve, and they emerge changed. There's lots of different flavors of story arc, but at their core, they all have those components. Now, I think what's interesting in our business, which is very much centered around pitches, like if I say, okay, you know, you're going to tell your story, who do they make the hero of that story? Themselves. They think the pitch is their story. They're the hero. And when you do that, you are competing with your client because there's only one hero. And if you're the asset manager, you are not the hero. Your client is the hero. And that's exactly what you just alluded to in your question, Bill. The asset manager is the guide. If it's a movie, the client is Luke Skywalker and the asset manager is Yoda. And so that is a big mindset shift in our space because pitching makes us all think that we have, I don't know, two minutes to convince someone to hire us and we make it about ourselves and it's not about us. And you do a great job as an association of reiterating to us to put ourselves in the shoes of the client, to think like an allocator and that's missing. If we stay with the storytelling and maybe taking that a little bit deeper, I think most stories, as I think about back to my grade school days, there was always a protagonist and an antagonist. And maybe the protagonist is the hero, maybe it's the client, but it falls into that definition. But the antagonist, it could be defined a couple of ways. I think it's unproductive and maybe too cute to say it's the GP. The GP has to be part of the solution. But I think maybe the antagonist is ignorance and lack of transparency, opacity. Maybe staying with the storyline, am I right? Is there an antagonist? And if it is, who is it? Yeah, I love this. This is like storytelling class. It's amazing. So there is always an enemy or an antagonist. You are 100% right. And I think to your point, Bill, it's easy, again, let's put ourselves in the asset manager's shoes right now. It's easy to say, okay, so my enemy is my competitor. That's like the easiest place they want to go because there's this mindset that everything is a zero-sum game. And that's not true. To your point, the antagonist doesn't even have to be a person or a company. It could be a construct. It could be a norm that needs to be challenged. It could be an old way of doing things that needs to be updated. So the enemy or antagonist in the story is not necessarily your competitor or your peer or somebody that you're trying to get out of someone's portfolio because you want to get in. That's not right. So I think you hit on that it could be an old way of doing things or ignorance or something that just needs to be changed. Speaking about diversity, that could be the enemy in the story. And the other thing I would say that all stories have is a messy middle. And that's another thing that I think 
naturally as people, we shy away from talking about because we want to put like our best foot forward and have this very polished, like, here's my story and it's perfect. It's edited for consumption. And the reality is that that creates distance when you tell a story because people aren't perfect and their lives aren't perfect and their journeys aren't perfect. And when you try to show up as if you are, it creates distance between you and the listener. And I'm going to stretch this narrative one last time and we'll move on. I wonder if sometimes that antagonist might be the voice or the behavioral tendencies inside of the client who has a certain expectation, but is that a short or a long-term expectation? And it's just like if I go and plant something in my garden and I come out the next morning and I'm upset, I don't see it growing. It's got to take some time. So do we do enough to talk to the client about what is the liability side of that balance sheet and that they're saving for the long-term for retirement at a young age? Should liquidity be what they really need. They may want it, but do they need it? So I don't think you're a behavioral expert, but you've been in and around this industry a long time. And so many decisions are driven by behavior. How big of a fly in the ointment is the behavior of the end investor? It's everything. That when I said I wanted to be a college professor back then, I wanted to be a literature professor. If I were to do that journey over, I would be a behavioral economics professor because I think human behavior, it underpins everything. And so I love that you brought this up. So the first direct answer to your question is certainly our own biases could be the antagonist in the story, 100%. It could also be the client's biases could be the antagonist in the story. Absolutely. What you said about liquidity is very interesting because I think in some ways, there's two sides to every story, two sides to every coin. There are some dangers of creating locked up structures. And we talked about democratization of creating sort of the interval funds and things with different liquidity profiles. However, on the positive side, they also protect us from ourselves. So you have all these people who want differentiated alpha, who want something unique in their portfolio, who want something different. And yet they have that little voice in their head that's probably going to be telling them to sell at the exact wrong time. And so liquidity is a very interesting example of this because they will be frustrated in the moment that they can't get their capital out, but in the long run, it actually might help them. So that's an interesting twist. It is. And I think I've mentioned this before, Stacey, on this podcast. And if you haven't seen it, I'll send it to you. Maybe put a link. But Morningstar did a recent analysis. It was in the 40 Act Fund space. And they looked at garden variety, long-only equity, fixed income, liquid alts, and target date funds. And target date funds aside for the moment, the other three categories, the average shareholder per annum did somewhere between 50 to 150 basis points less than the fund itself, just because they're tacking in and out. What I found so very interesting, that didn't surprise me. We've seen these studies, et cetera. The target date funds, the average investor did 50 basis points better per annum because every two weeks, money's coming out of your 401k, it's getting matches going in, and that's sort of dead money from a liquidity standpoint. So I think we've shown that in the right structure and the right vehicle, it can be done. But I just think that this is something we have to really lean on and emphasize with the end investor. Again, maybe if you had taken another career path, maybe there is a pivot in you, Stacey, but I think this is important. It goes back to what you said at the top of the show about asset gathering and sort of this idea that every investor is the right investor for a fund, which we all intuitively know is not true. 
But in practice, that's very difficult for a portfolio manager or a salesperson to sort of accept. And I think it's important because, to your point, democratization is a great thing at its core from an intention perspective. But how it actually plays out in practice is very different. And there's an incredible amount of education, which Kaya has done a phenomenal job of spearheading around what it means to be in these vehicles. What are the potential rewards? Yes. What are the risks? What does it mean just operationally? And there's so many questions that people have about that. So as asset managers, as professionals in the space, we have to be good stewards and do that think like an allocator work to really say the client might not understand it. And it's not just about education. It's about us saying, I'm not sure that client is the right client for me. And I'm going to be thoughtful about who my target market is. It makes sense. Maybe pivoting a little bit to emerging managers, which you mentioned earlier, and you've had great success there. And, and I want to get into some of the reasons why this is a bit of a passion for you in terms of what you try to do at Havener Capital. But maybe to set this up, if I think about sourcing alpha, where do I find it? I find it in pockets of great inefficiency. I find it in pockets where I'm the only one there. I find it in pockets that are less liquid. So if I think about growing a strategy and growing and growing and growing, and it become billions of dollars, maybe somebody's figured out my algo, they have found a way of replicating it. I'm traveling in the same big names. I can't go after these inefficient opportunities because my fund is too big for it to make an allocation decision in that direction. But then there's career risk of hiring the emerging manager. But all things being equal, and I'm sure somebody will have the other side of this, but I think the inefficiencies that an emerging manager can bring to the table are a very interesting thing to look at. But as you point out, IDD and ODD, operational investment due diligence, critically, critically important. But maybe talk about the base case and the best case as to why emerging managers should be part of your consideration. I think you nailed it. And let's just say there's a place for both, right? There's a place for emerging managers. There's a place for bigs, as I like to call them. There's a place for boutiques. There's a place for bigs. There's a place for active. There's a place for passive. I think that's sort of the framework we have to operate in. I think for me, when I look at, much like you said, when I look at emerging managers and when I think about boutiques, what I see is somebody who specializes in something that is harnessing an inefficiency or an anomaly that they are uniquely positioned to take advantage of and to create that alpha. And the difference to me with a specialist is they know what they're good at and they want to do that thing and they want to do it well. So they're not super interested in launching 20 different funds, all different flavors of investing, equity, fixed, alts. They're not really interested in building. They don't want breadth per se. They want depth. And to me, there's a place for that. There's a place in your portfolio for somebody who specializes in something. And one of the things that we always ask emerging managers when we talk with them is, what is your capacity? And it's a red flag to us on a couple of things. If they have a number that seems totally out of whack with reality, right? Because to your point, there is a demarcation point that the strategy will no longer be effective if the assets cross this threshold, right? So we have some sense of that. So it's a red flag if they have a number that's too large. And it's also a red flag if the number's a moving target. And I think with specialists, they're very comfortable, almost passionate about how much money they can manage in that 
style, in their style. And a lot of times we really love working with breakaways. So a talented portfolio manager who spins out of a much larger shop. And one of the common reasons that that happens is because they have felt that the asset gathering became more important than the asset management and that the size of the funds and strategies they were running negatively impacted their ability to generate alpha for investors. It's so passionate for them that they say, screw it, I'm going to go set up my own shop. So to me, there's a place for somebody who specializes in something. And it's not that it has to be in every asset class, but there are certain parts of the market where that makes a lot of sense. And product quality is so very important. I started in this industry over 40 years ago in the long-only space. And if you brought a small cap fund to market, and if you could not say with clarity and certainty when you were going to close that fund, and it was probably something like a billion dollars or three quarters of a billion dollars, because the opportunity set, you couldn't add the alpha anymore. You were dead on arrival. But in some of these hedge fund spaces, an example, there doesn't seem to be any perceived cap. And it, so it almost becomes not everybody, but it becomes sort of a great fee mechanism for the GP. But is it adding value for the end client? Critical question to ask and answer. Critical question, critical part of an allocator's due diligence. We had a manager back in the day who was in the international equity space, and the numbers were slightly larger on capacity there, but same concept. And we had an early adopter investor, very successful RIA, who allocated, asked the question, just like you said, what's the number? They gave the number. We got to that number. It was a big number. We got to that number. And the manager said, well, Okay, anything that starts with well when you're talking about capacity is never good, right? Well, you know, I mean, the markets have changed and liquidity has changed and we think the numbers double what we initially said. And that allocator pulled their money and it was over $100 million. They pulled their money and they were right. And I think that's such an important part of an allocator's due diligence process that managers need to understand because... The asset gathering starts to take over the mindset and a very astute allocator can see that a mile away, as you said, you're dead on arrival. I agree. Maybe a slight pivot. And if this is something you know nothing about, I don't either. So we can punt on it. But we're sitting here. I don't know when this is going to be released, but we're sitting here on a Friday in early June. And I think the very first time I heard chat GPT might have been less than six months ago. But every week, the amount of times this comes up, it's accelerated to a point where it's just mind numbing. And I won't name them, but it was in the news just last week. One of the largest global banks have come out with their own chat blank, and they are using it to pick stocks for the end client. So I think these tools can serve a purpose. I've played a little bit with ChatGPT, and it's very, very good at some things and very, very bad at others. And I wrote sort of a tongue-in-cheek blog post, and I asked ChatGPT, can the bot be a fiduciary? And it was very clear and spot on. It said it cannot be a fiduciary because of the human touch and understanding the end client. But I think if we embrace these tools that's one thing, and then we should figure out how to use them. But if we do it too quickly, I think we run the risk of setting these clients up for failure or maybe widening the educational gap between the manager on the one side and the client on the other. But have you experimented with any of this AI or algos? I'm sure some of your managers have used some of these tools and what your view is and how we should be thinking about some of the opportunities and the risks. 
Yeah. So I'm kind of with you. I don't know enough about it, but obviously you'd have to be under a rock to not feel like you need to know something about it. It's interesting. We do have a few managers that are using AI who've been using it. There's one in particular that I'm on the board of that they've used AI for a number of years. Again, going back to specialization, I think it's something that you have to specialize in that. It's not just like a flip thing, like, okay, you know what? Here's chat GPT. Let me just turn that on and use it. So like anything, it requires expertise. That requires time. That requires dollars. That requires people. So I think that is not for everybody right now. There's a lot of people trying it, but it's sort of like throwing spaghetti against the wall. So that's worrisome. The place I see it more, to be honest with you, as a storyteller is a lot of people are saying, oh, how cool chat GPT can just like write your commentary, write your blog, write your story, write whatever. And so I will say I'm very old school. So this is somewhat terrifying to me, but I did try it because I thought, well, let me just see what it does if I ask it some questions or whatever. And I don't know, at least right now, I felt like, okay, it's good for idea generation, maybe, and a couple ideas here and there that were interesting, but it's not the same as the human touch. And I think that's the part that's missing. So going back to storytelling for a second, if you are telling your story and writing a narrative for whatever it is you do, the bot can't know your experience. And a really good story touches on shared human experience. And the bot can't know that because it didn't live your life. It didn't live the challenges you've overcome. It hasn't gone through those things. And so I don't see how it could replicate that because it's not in your heart. It's not in your soul. It's not in your mind. So those things to me are important, even though we're in a numbers industry. I think chat GPT sort of gives managers who are already uncomfortable tapping into maybe the qualitative side and out. It's like, oh, I don't have to do that hard work. I don't have to understand my story because I can just ask this bot to do it for me. I think you're spot on. And part of storytelling is not just being able to talk about your performance track record or a particular uh, name in your portfolio. You've got to talk about the weaknesses of the story too, because if this is a long-term investor, there's going to be a period of time or a type of market cycle where if you're consistent with your process and philosophy, and you must be, or if you're a credible manager... There's going to be times when it's out of favor and you've got to be able to tell the story, the good, the bad. And if there's some ugly, get that out there too, because the client's going to eventually find this out and you'd rather find it out before the storm clouds come in because these cycles do come and go and they can be just very, very biting, but they don't last very long and they come out the other side and the sun comes out. But I think it's critical and you're right. I don't think no matter how much this spot or chat GPT progresses, the human element is never going to be there. So you and I should theoretically be employed until the end of time. I think that's it. And I love what you said there about mistakes and the messiness. That's a question I think every investor hopefully asks their manager. Tell me about a mistake you made and what you learned from it. How did that inform your process? How has that informed your risk management? I've seen managers refuse to answer that question, by the way. I couldn't believe it, but I did see somebody refuse to answer that question. And rightly so, the allocator did not make the allocation. And so I think there are so many different stories we can tell, and not all of them are rainbows and unicorns, but that doesn't mean that they're not important. 
And I think if you're truly being authentic, nothing in life is perfect. No investment process, no person, no nothing. And I think it speaks to your level of transparency. So Stacey, I'm going to let you take the final word. We're coming up on the close here. And I thought this discussion was excellent. I very much appreciate what you do in your mission, but maybe a takeaway for the audience. Yeah, I think my takeaway would be basically just the nutshell around narrative. I was actually at an event yesterday in Newport and I was talking to an allocator and she said to me, I think about you and storytelling when I meet with managers, because as they talk, I keep wanting to say to them, give me the good stuff. Give me the emotion. Give me the things I can connect with. And it's one thing for me to say it as somebody who's sort of in the business of helping managers tell stories. But I think hearing it from her, hearing it from an allocator, just gave me that extra kick that I needed, which is this work matters. Qualitative due diligence matters. Who you are as a person and why you do what you do matters as much, if not more, than the results you're delivering to your clients from a performance perspective. So high five on story. Absolutely. Well, I'm not going to take the other side of that or even try a great closing observation. Stacy. thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Bill. Thank you for listening to Educational Alpha. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Learn more about the Kaya Association and subscribe to the show at kaya.org. That's C-A-I-A.org. See you next time. Mm-hmm.